If you want to grab your Bibles or your phone app, turn to Mark chapter 2. That's where we're going to be jumping off here. And uh, got to thinking about this. This uh, I read something recently that asked the question, why we are all here? And it was geared towards uh, followers of Christ. Like, why are we still here? So the question is like, okay, so um, if, if I have a relationship with the Lord and... Um, I'm still here. There's got to be a reason why he didn't just go on and take me to heaven. Because if my purpose for being here is just to praise him or bring him glory, um, I can do a lot better job in heaven without all the distractions here on earth. So there has to be a reason why I'm still here. And I truly believe this, that, that we exist to point others to Jesus. That was the summary of, of, of what I was reading we exist to point others to Jesus because there are only a few things that we can do here on earth that affect eternity, that we can actually do more effectively here on earth than we could in heaven. And we have, we have this opportunity to share our story and maybe help somebody enter into a story with Jesus that I think we should take very seriously, which is what Mark chapter 2 talks about. There is a a word that we use a lot in Christian circles. I call it Christianese. We have a lot of words that we use in Christian circles that aren't really used anywhere else. And if you use these words, it means something different. One of the words is testimony. Like when you think of the word testimony, you think of being in court, right? But in Christian circles, the way that I was brought up in church, a testimony is the story of how you came to know Jesus, like your faith in Christ, And it looks different for everybody. But when I was nine years old, my dad was in the military, stationed in Anniston, Alabama, at Fort McClellan Army Base. And he came home from work one day, and we're sitting at the table eating, and he said, somebody invited me to go hear a tent revival preacher this evening, and I'm going to go. And we weren't really church-going people, and I remember going, well, can I go? Sounded cool. My sister said, can I go? And my dad's like, sure. So my sister and I go with my dad to go to the parking lot of Kmart where a guy had sent up a huge tent. And and even at that time, Kmart didn't have many cars in the parking lot. (laughs) And he had put out all these wood slat chairs. And it was, of course, I was nine years old. Everything's huge when you're nine years old. But it was a huge tent and there's, a, there's an organ up there going, a piano going, and the, and, the, and the preacher's name was Lee Castro. I have since located him. He lives in Texas, and I called him to thank him for preaching that night because what happened was he got up and he preached. Now, he was one of these windsuckers, like, you know, hellfire, damnation kind of preachers, right? And, and as a nine-year-old boy, he's talking about how, you know, and I don't know that fear is the best motivator to enter into a relationship with Christ, but it worked because he literally scared the hell out of me, right? It was like, I just want to say that because preachers don't get to cuss. And there's a lot of times where, like, I really want to cuss, and if you'd write it on a piece of paper, I would sign it. But... I, we, 
but it just made me feel good to say that. So, so he gets up there and he, and he preaches and he's foaming and he's just, you know, making it, making it real. And I could feel the flames of hell, if you will, as a nine-year-old boy. And then he gave this invitation and I was, you know, I was kind of raised in a home where, where, you know, thumbs on you. So I, I was, I didn't want to respond without getting permission. And I just remember looking over, my dad's not moving and nobody else is moving, and he invited us to stand if we wanted to receive Christ. And I look over, and then I saw my sister looking at me, and I'm looking at my sister, and I'm kind of like, well, both of us will get in trouble then. <laughs> so we both stood up and went forward, and someone took the Bible and showed me some verses and led me through some, some scriptures and actually led me in a prayer where I believe at nine years of age I received Christ into my life. And I don't know what all that meant in heaven, and I don't know what all that meant spiritually, but that began a journey for me and my relationship with Jesus, and that is my testimony. And I am grateful for every event in Lee Castro's life that made that night possible. I don't know how he ever stepped out and was called to preach. I don't know how much money it cost him to buy that tent. I don't know what brought him to Anniston, Alabama. And hey, I don't even know what kind of courage it took for my dad's co-worker in the military to ask Major Replog if he wanted to go to a tent revival meeting with him that evening. But I'm glad they stepped out and made that happen because this nine-year-old boy met Jesus that night. And that's why we exist is to make that happen for somebody else. In your Bible, the first four books in the Old Testament is this incredible account of the life of Christ. And each author, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have a different take on what happened, but they have a lot of similar experiences because, you know, it was Jesus. Three of them record what happened in this moment in Mark chapter 2. But it starts off, the, 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 verse, the first verse in chapter 1 starts off with like Jesus returns to Capernaum. So let's find out what had happened before all of that. So in Mark chapter 1, you don't necessarily have to turn there, but a lot happened in Mark chapter 1. So in Mark chapter 1, here's what all I jotted down that I saw that happened. Jesus was baptized in Mark chapter 1. He called all of his disciples in Mark chapter 1. He taught in the synagogue in Capernaum. In Mark chapter 1, he cast out an unclean spirit. He healed Peter's mother-in-law, for which Peter never completely forgave Christ. That one would have been better left in my head. That's okay. That was not in my notes. He ministered to everyone who came into Peter's house. He preached in synagogues throughout Galilee, and he healed a leper. So all of that happened in chapter 1 of Mark. So as we jump into chapter 2, here's how it starts, the first couple of verses here. And it says, and again, he entered into Capernaum. Now, what was Capernaum? Capernaum was a little fishing village of about 1,500 people. Not a huge place, but that whole Galilee region was a very critical location because a lot of trade routes went through there. And so in Capernaum, you have a tax collector there to collect taxes And that was Matthew, the author of the first book of the New Testament. That's also where Peter and Andrew, James and John lived, was in Capernaum. 
The ruins of Capernaum, I got a, I got a photo up here. This is, because you can tell I went to the Holy Land. This is what they have uncovered so far in Capernaum. And it's very interesting because you notice the, the darker colored rocks. It's because that was, that, that, was the common, that was the common rock that they would use for most buildings. On the left-hand side, in the upper corner, I'll show you another picture in a minute. But that's a synagogue that they uncovered from around 400, uh, the, fourth, the fifth century, somewhere in that neighborhood. But this is where Jesus was doing all of this. And you can see that these are like the, the, the foundations of some of the houses that were there. And now the synagogue that you see there, let's, let's show you the synagogue. This, this synagogue is actually dated around the 4th or 5th century, and it's on top of another synagogue that they believe was from the time of Christ. And I got to tell you, to be walking there and knowing that, that this is where Jesus was is a pretty incredible feeling. There's another synagogue in Magdala that is dated to the 1st century. And when you read that Jesus went all about Galilee preaching in the synagogues, and you know that there's a good chance Jesus was standing there. So if my face is glowing a little bit, that's why. <laughs> but it's a pretty awesome experience. So here you have a synagogue in that, in this, was, this was in Capernaum. So let's continue here. So we enter into Capernaum after some days, and it was noise that he was in the house. I just want to say that. I've been saying that like in my mind all week when I've been reading this, like, you know, Jesus is in the house. <laughs> and straightway many were gathered together in so much that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. It was crowded. Now, the average house size was not that big. So we're probably only talking about 50 people. That's what they're estimating. About 50 people crammed in here and then people flowing outside the house, maybe listening in the windows. So really a a very tight, compact space here. And they came unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy. Now palsy is an old word that just means he was a paralytic. He was some form of of paralysis. And as you kind of read what's happening here, there's probably a good chance that he was a quadriplegic, but we don't know. But at least he could not walk, we know that. Which was born of four. Now, I don't know what, how all of this got initiated. I don't know who came up with the idea. But these guys had a friend who couldn't walk. And Jesus had been performing all kinds of miracles, and this is not his first time in Capernaum. So when they hear Jesus is back in Capernaum, let's go get our friend who needs to know, how to, needs to know Jesus, right? So here's what they did. These four friends knew their friend needed Jesus. And so you have this whole course of events that happened through chapter in chapter 2 here through verse 12 of, of what happened because they just knew their friend needed Jesus. That was what precipitated all of this activity was the fact that they knew their friend needed Jesus. Now, I don't know if these people were believers in Jesus' message. I don't know if they were convinced that he was the Messiah. This is the beginning of his ministry. I do feel, though, that they believed enough that Jesus could heal their friend. And that's where, that's, that, I know that for sure. So here's a few things I want to bring up from this story as we kind of read through here. And the first thing is this, that they cared enough to do something. And I'll say this, I believe that as Christ followers, we should be doing more than just doing church. 
Because I don't think that we were designed just to do church. And here's the sad thing. I think we do, I think we do church really well. Like I think this service is a lot of fun. I enjoy it. I feel like I learn stuff. It's kind of like patting myself on the back, isn't it? But it's like I, I really enjoy who we are as a church. I love our spirit. I love this. But this is doing church. And I think we need to be church. And so I don't know what it looked like for them, but, but they didn't just care about their friend. They didn't just sit back and say, you know what? Someone really needs to reach our friend for Jesus. Our friend really needs to meet Jesus. It would make a big difference in his life if he met Jesus. Man, I wish he could be here to hear Jesus. I wonder if our friend knows that Jesus can heal him because he healed these other people. I wonder, so, so caring about their friend obviously was not enough. They had to do something about it. And, and there is like this, there's like this step that takes place from just caring to do something. Let me tell you how overwhelmed I was this last week with our church jumping in to help with the homeless in the thermal shelter. So for the last seven nights, we've had men staying in our church in the fellowship hall. And we've had over 50 people from this church sign up and cook meals, stay up all night, give haircuts, provide transportation, eat with them, play games with them, treat them like family for the last seven nights. One of the most beautiful stories, Karen was the driver, and we'd go down to CCAP and pick them all up, and she's, she's, there was two new guys one night in the van, and Karen's driving, and she texted me, and she said, I got tears while I'm texting this to you. They're driving here, and you understand that, that they're pretty skeptical of coming to a church, right? They're used to fending for themselves. They're survivors, and so a couple of them were kind of nervous, the new guys, and one of the other guys says, don't worry, they treat you like family here. They turn the corner to come down Rockland Road, and he goes, hey, guys, we're almost home. I'm so glad to be a part of the church that does more than just care about people. We do something about that. And what an honor it was to see all that happen. Let me, and the cool thing was the ramifications of all that is that our guests weren't the only ones to notice it. It's like other workers that don't go to church here could sense that and our love for people. And that's a big thing, and I don't know what God's going to do with that. That's not why we do it, but it's a beautiful thing to see all of that happen. So thank you. But caring is not enough. You've got to do something, attach that to it. Because doing is just an expression of caring. And it's how things happen. It's impossible to love deeply and not act upon that. So these four guys go get their friend, and I don't know what was involved in that. Like, how did they talk him into it? You know, he was probably on the outskirts of the city, maybe one of the more, more well-traveled roads so that he could get maybe some, some coins in his cup or whatever. I don't know. And they talk him into it, and they got to carry him. So these four guys carry him all the way and they get there and they run into a problem because, because 
Everybody is there to see Jesus, and they can't get in to see Jesus. Verse 4 says this, And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, too many people pressed in. They uncovered the roof where he was, and when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. What a paradox here. So, so, so what, look at this. The needy people couldn't get through to see Jesus because those who were close to Jesus were preventing the others from discovering him. Ouch. The people who knew Jesus were facing Jesus and were so interested in what Jesus was saying, they didn't notice the man that they had their back to who needed Jesus. God help us. But they were going to get him to Jesus. And so number two, they found a way to make it happen. And as we read in verse four there, so in, in those days, roofs were normally flat. And the way that they were constructed was they would put beams or some type of logs one direction, put branches the other direction, and then they would put clay tiles on top of those branches, and then they would make a mixture of mud, and they would slather it all on top of there and keep putting layer and layer of mud until the roof became waterproof. And it was so strong, and they would build stairs on the outside of the house to go up onto the roof because that was a place where they would go and rest and relax in the evening. Not a bad idea. So they would go up there, and so it was a strong enough roof to carry the weight of these men. So it wasn't like you might picture like a thatched roof where they just had to move some branches away. No, they had to break up the roof. So I can just picture Jesus teaching and all these people in this small room, and dust starts falling from the ceiling, right? Dust starts falling from the ceiling. They look around, and you know, everybody else notices it too. And then light, little pieces of like, like beams of light start to shine through as, they, as they're breaking. Someone's got to pay for that, by the way. If that was my house, I wouldn't be real happy. And then they break everything away. They break up the branches and they get everything out of the way to where they have a large enough space to lower this guy down on a stretcher. And they, they lower him down and put him right in front of Jesus. And so, I, I don't know, so the, the, the ceiling opens up finally. And I don't know if Jesus just completely stopped talking, just watched him for like the next 15 minutes. Because like, what are you going to get, what, are you, what truth are you going to convey while this is going on? And so he watches them and they finally get it all broken out. And then can't you see like four heads peering over, you know, into the, into the room? And then they lower him down. And here's what the Bible says in verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, now let me confess to you, I don't even know what that means. But Jesus saw their faith. Now, this paralytic man might have been included in the there, but Jesus doesn't say, but, but it doesn't say when Jesus saw his faith, the guy laying in front of him. The Bible says when he saw their faith. And all three gospel writers who say this, who tell this story, say the same thing. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Now, I don't know, I don't know how their faith made it possible for his sins to be forgiven. 
but there's something there. I don't know if it was God working through their spirit. I don't know if he was so impressed by what he saw that the faith that they showed had an effect on what Jesus did for him. But folks, if that is even 10% true, and you have the ability with your faith to help change somebody else's life, how amazing is that? That the mama who prays for her boy, that the husband who prays for his kids, that the wife who prays for their husband can have an impact because of the faith that they have, that's encouraging. That's exceptional. So Jesus sees their faith and looks at the man and says, your sins are forgiven. Now here's here's the thing. Not everybody was happy about that. But one of the most incredible parts of this story is what just happened here. And that is, they worked together. And that's what I was saying earlier when we were taking communion together. There is something powerful when the people of God are happy with each other. And let me tell you, just like with any family, just because you love each other doesn't mean you're going to agree on everything. Right? You find a way to work through that. And you realize that the relationships that you have are more valuable than your opinion. And you stop trying to make a point and you start trying to make a difference. And now you can start affecting change and things can start happening. Because as they began to work together, imagine, imagine what if one of them decided, I just don't think this is the right way to do it. And you got all four of them like, okay, maybe they're in cadence, all right? Down, 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 down. And then one of them goes, nah, let's do it another way. The poor guy, right? Flip. Now, it probably wasn't a real tall roof. You know, I hate to say it, they probably weren't as tall as we are today. And so you've, even if he had fallen, I mean, how much more damage could be done, right? All right, so I'm thinking out loud. I shouldn't have said that. Okay. So he, that was really bad. Can I cut that out? It's a dangerous place up here. I'm telling you, just like... But, but they worked together, and he did not fall. That's the whole point of that thing right there. Psalm 133.1 says this, How beautiful, how good, how pleasant, how wonderful it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's a sweet place to be. If you read Ephesians chapter 4, Paul lists all of these different giftings that he's given the church for the church to function well. And we're like this body that just works together and all of us don't do the same thing and yet there's in verse 13 he says something about something to the effect of for the unity of the faith and there is something about everything we do together and as we mature as believers it ought to bring us into this place of unity with each other that's a big end game for us as the church and here was the impact it had it changed this man's life. And so, of course, not everybody was happy about it, right? So look at verses 6 and 7. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but only God? Right? Not everybody was happy with what's going on here. 
And so here's the truth. These four guys who brought their friend, they took a risk and they were willing to offend the Pharisees sitting in the house. And here's the risk you take. When you really want to get someone to Jesus, when you really care enough, when you really want to do something about their problem, not everybody's going to be happy with it. And you got to be okay with that. Because this guy coming to Jesus was more important than the Pharisees approving of everything and being happy with everything. And here's the sad truth. That which is closest to the heart of God is most often the most offensive to the Pharisees. Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. Now, he hasn't healed them yet. He says, your sins are forgiven. And that really bothered the Pharisees. Now, here's the thing. You can't see if someone's sins are forgiven. Right? So they're going to they're gonna gripe about this. Amongst themselves, who does this man think he is that he can forgive sins? There's no evidence that the sins were forgiven. Now, the Pharisees had every right to be there. They were pretty much in charge of the law. So here was this new rabbi, Jesus, coming up with this new teaching, and they were there to check him out, which was their right. They were kind of given the, the, the reins, if you will. They were, they were supposed to check this kind of thing out. So it's no surprise they were there. The problem is they were there with their minds already made up. And like they weren't looking for something positive. They weren't looking for like, okay, let's see what this guy says. Let's see if we can learn something. No, they, they came with their mind already made up. Verse 8, Jesus notices it. And he says, and immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit, that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, why reason ye these things in your heart? He's just a sweet baby. He really is. It's his dad. That's the problem. (laughs) So it's amazing. Every time mama takes him away from his dad, he stops crying. That's just, I'm just, I'm just pointing out the obvious, Warren. I'm sorry, man. It's just, And the in-laws are going, you got that right, buddy. (laughs) So Jesus perceives that these guys are having a problem with the fact that he just said, your sins are forgiven. And he says this, you tell me which one's easier, right? The King James says, whether it is easier to say to the sick of the palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee, or arise and take up that bed and walk. So he's giving them a challenge So I love how Jesus does this. Jesus looks at him and says, all right, you tell me which one is easier, that I say his sins are forgiven or that I tell him to raise up his bed and walk, which he hasn't done yet. He is setting them up. And so what are they going to say? Well, it's going to be much easier to say your sins are forgiven because nobody can see that. That's an invisible miracle. And so what he does is he turns to the man and says, all right, take up your bed and walk. Verse 10 says, but you know that the Son of Man hath power, but that you may know the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. He says to the sick of the palsy, he looks at the man and says, and I say unto thee, arise and take up thy bed and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed and went forth before them all insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw it on this fashion. I love the King James. It's so understated. We never saw it on this fashion. Man, their, their jaws dropped, right? So here, because here's the thing. What Jesus had just said, is it easier for me to forgive sins or is it easier for me to, to raise the bed and walk? And they said, well, you know, of course, it's gonna be harder for you to do this. Well, then he does it. So now, did he do that? 
So as they're walk, watching this man pick up his bed and, and try and make his way through the crowd to get out because it's all crowded, they still hear Jesus saying in the, back of their, in the back of their mind going, your sins are forgiven. So if he can, for, if he can heal this man, then he could forgive the sins. Kind of troubling for their way of life. So here's, here's what we're going to like funnel this all, bring it all down to, and we'll be done. Favorite phrase of any pastor. In conclusion, one of these guys had to initiate this. I don't know which of the four, but one of them came up with the idea first. And then he had to get three other guys on board. And then they had to get the guy on board. And then they encountered a problem. They go through, I mean, all of this is just this incredible story of their determination. And my question for you is this. Who is that person for you? Who are you going to be that friend for? Like who in your life needs Jesus? And what can you do to affect that? So if we are here, if we are on this earth to point people to Jesus. How is that happening in your life? We do church really well. We've been doing church really well. But we're not here to do church. We're here to point people to Jesus. And so I think there's some things that we need to do to change our behavior. Let me just give you a couple things here real quick. I think, first of all, you need to write down their name. I think you need to pray for them by name. And you say, well, Eric, you know, like most of my family already knows Jesus. Most of my, okay, there's somebody. And I think you need to be very intentional about it. Like you need to, to write down their name, pray for them by name, be very intentional. That means, that means maybe, so, so I think that just the way that we live needs to be more relational. Like we need to build relationships with people. So it's one thing to have like that one person on your mind, I need to get them to church, I need to, I need to introduce them to Jesus, I need to pray for them. It's another thing about building other relationships as well. So maybe it means you go in and eat instead of going through drive through Maybe it means you pick up the rake and help your neighbor. Maybe it means getting out of your cocoon at the soccer field and talking to another parent there. And getting to know people and building relationships and be intentional about it. I think you should write down their name, pray for them by name, be intentional about how you live your life and build relationships and then invite them in. And make a difference. And begin to make this thing happen so you're not just coming to church. You're actually pointing people to Jesus on a daily basis and you're building those relationships to make that happen. I know this, God is more interested in doing a work in their life than you are. And I truly believe that if you'll be that friend that maybe either comes up with the idea of getting this person to Jesus or you're the one willing to help make it happen, that the faith that you are showing will have an impact. But I believe prayer works and I believe it makes a difference. It might not be in our timetable. 
But God wants a relationship with them more than you want them to have a relationship with them. Let's pray. Father, we are excited about what you want to do in our lives, in the lives of our friends, and even in the lives of the people we don't even know we're going to have an impact on. But you are the answer. You not only provide us a different way to live, you provide us with an eternal relationship that gives us answers and gives us peace and gives us hope right here on earth. And even if heaven was never a reality, living life here on earth with you is is so worth it. And help us to be that friend, to have that impact. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.